Om Namah Shivaya and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and this is The Long View, week three. Yes, today is Wednesday, October 14th. Three weeks to go, 20 days left till election day in the election of our lifetimes. And what I'm doing in this series of episodes in The Long View, I'm bringing you everyday stories from my life as a volunteer working to try and defeat Trump in this election. And this week, I'm actually going to do a little bit of a deep dive into COVID. Yes, we're still in the middle of a deadly global pandemic. And this week, especially COVID is in the news because in many of the battleground states, including Wisconsin, where I've been doing a lot of my volunteering, COVID is on the surge. We're right in uh, at the start of the predicted second wave of the COVID surge here in the U.S., uh, of course, in the U.S., we never really left the first wave, and so the second wave is about to hit us even harder. So today, what I'm going to do is actually uh, uh, revisit uh, some of the basics of COVID, especially because of all the misinformation and all the propaganda that uh, Trump is uh, is putting out there. I thought I would just uh, double down and uh, focus on what what's the science, what's the data, and what are the facts around COVID. So... Come with me and let's immerse ourselves into blissfully a world of actual scientific reasoning and fact-based approaches to COVID. Oniva. All right, so in this episode, I'm going to dive into the science, the data, and the facts behind COVID. We have come a long ways in the 10 months that uh, the world has been grappling with this pandemic. There's now a lot more that we collectively know about this virus. And so what I want to do before I dive into that is summarize what are the four major takeaways um, that uh, I feel we should we should remember as we face the coming months. Um, so here they are. The first major takeaway based on all the science, all the data, all the facts is buckle up. Buckle up. Double down on the basics. Let's not let our guard down. Some of the basic precautions that the World Health Organization put out in place at the uh, early in the pandemic still are uh, uh, true today. They still work, and we'll get into a little bit of why they work, but those basics include wearing masks, um, practicing social distancing, practicing hygiene, um, washing our hands, and making sure we're not touching our faces, um, avoiding closed indoor spaces. Uh, this virus is airborne. Uh, so, so basic, basic precautions like that are absolutely necessary. So we got to buckle up. Second major takeaway from all of the data, all of the science, all of the facts, buck up, stay resilient. Um, you know, one of the keys to this is to make sure we don't set for ourselves some artificial timeline and, and hope and expect that things will, quote unquote, become normal by some date. Oh, hopefully things will be normal by January. Hopefully things will be not normal by the spring. Hopefully things will be normal by next summer. They may not be normal. We cannot let ourselves um, uh, get overwhelmed when uh, things actually end up maybe going worse. Which brings me to the third key takeaway, which is brace yourselves. Things are going to get worse before they get better. What the data shows us and what the science tells us is that we are going to be facing a surge in the fall and in the winter, uh, coinciding with flu season. And this flu season may actually be one of the worst flu seasons. Uh, and so given all of that, 
uh, uh, countries are probably going to re-enter lockdown. Um, and that is going to have a devastating psychological blow for a lot of folks who, who have been hoping and expecting to have things return to normal only to have lockdown happen again. So brace yourselves. That is about to happen. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Which brings me to the fourth key takeaway from all of the data, all of the science, is that we should focus on simply the word be. The word to be, the verb to be, is a foundational verb in many, many languages for a reason. And one of the things we can do is be together, be informed especially, and be aware of, of how uh, the choices we make are going to have such a big impact. We are actually facing two pandemics. There is a medical pandemic, which involves this deadly mutating virus that is spreading rapidly in the human body as a host that is simply unprepared to deal with this virus. And our body is uh, uh, trying to figure out how to combat this totally new novel virus. That is the medical pandemic. As a corollary, the second pandemic we're dealing with is a political pandemic. And by politics, I don't necessarily mean Democrats versus Republicans or political parties. I mean the politics of fear, the politics of lies, the politics of misinformation, the politics by which people are now beginning to associate even things like wearing masks as some kind of political statement. And so in that uh, context, it feels very much like we are facing a deadly, mutating, viral spread of lies and misinformation in a host, a society, a media and information ecosystem that is simply not prepared uh, and does not have the right immune response system to deal with this novel spread of viral misinformation in the face of something that, on the face of it, a global pandemic with science behind it, People should be rallying around it, but instead people are divided and fighting each other and doing absolutely stupid things, making the stupidest apocalypse ever even stupider. So what can we do? We can be, we can choose to be part of our societal immune response system against this viral spread of misinformation. And that's what I'm trying to do with this episode of this podcast, is get into at least... Um, what does the science tell us? What data should we be paying attention to? And what facts should we really be clear about? So on that note, let's dive into first the science behind this virus. Let's go. Okay, so what's the science behind the virus? What do we now know about this virus that's different from what we initially thought about this virus way back in January or February? And I'll qualify all of this by saying right up front that, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an immunologist, I'm not a virologist, I'm a storyteller. But one of the things I've been trying to uh, figure out is there's this whole flood of news articles and, and some sensational reporting every day. And I've been trying to make sense of what are the right sources to look for? What are the right medical articles or scientific articles to go um, search for information on this? And what kinds of databases or websites should I be actually uh, looking through? And so what I'm doing here is I'm actually distilling uh, uh, some of the, the more authoritative and uh, scientific consensus sources that I've been able to find. And based on that, 
Here's what we now know about how this virus functions. It turns out that this virus actually causes a respiratory infection that then becomes a pulmonary disease. What I mean by that is that the virus has this unique structure to it that binds to a protein receptor called ACE2. And the primary site for that protein is uh, where you can find a lot of this protein is at the very top of our lungs. And so the way this virus enters our body primarily is through our nasal pathway and through our mouths and affects the uh, and binds to the ACE2 protein receptors at the top of our lungs. And so this explains why the initial onset of the virus manifests as a dry cough, starts out as a little bit of a tickle at the base of your throat. And that is a respiratory infection. That, that how, that's how the virus initially begins. But the interesting thing about this virus is that even before that cough develops, so even before you begin to feel those symptoms, the virus actually binds to that, that protein receptor and begins to replicate really, really rapidly and produces millions of copies of itself that because these are happening at the site, at the top of your lungs, these get exhaled out into the air um, through your breathing without you being even aware that you're contagious. So in that incubation period, anywhere from the first two days to in some cases as long as 10 days, you're breathing actively uh, uh, virus particles out into the air without realizing that, that you have this virus uh, binding itself to the ACE2 receptors on the top of your lungs. Now, from that point on, what happens is as the virus then descends into the lungs, it causes massive lung damage and, and begins to actually cause pneumonia. And so this is where that coughing, the, that coughing actually causes the more inflammation to happen in the lungs, more painful coughing ensues, and respiratory distress sets in. In a lot of people, that's the most severe form of the, of the disease is acute respiratory distress, and that's what initially manifested in a lot of hospitals, people needing ventilation and intubation to pump oxygen into their lungs um, while doctors try to figure out how to um, help them heal from massive pneumonia in their lungs, massive amounts of fluid in their lungs from all the coughing, all the inflammation, and all the organ damage happening in the lungs. But it turns out that there's other ways that this virus mutates, uh, this, uh, this virus spreads in the body and causes other kinds of lethalities and deaths. Because the virus binds to this ACE2 pro, uh, protein, the ACE2 protein is actually pretty commonly found throughout the body in a lot of other organs. So other pathways for this virus are, it, 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 it might uh, travel down the GI tract, down the throat and into the stomach and cause severe gastrointestinal symptoms um, and, and stomach damage, including, um, uh, you know, severe diarrhea, severe vomiting. Um, and so these kinds of, you know, hitherto sort of like unexplained or, or rather strange symptoms happen through that. Um, the ACE2 protein is also find, found widely in the blood, in the bloodstream. And so that's another place that the virus attacks. And when it attacks, the ACE, what the ACE2 protein does in the blood is it helps actually regulate the oxygen levels in the blood. So when the virus attacks those sites in the blood, it leads to a rapid deoxygenation of the blood. This leads to people's blood oxygen levels falling really, really dramatically. And that leads to things like 
you know, symptoms like COVID toes, feelings of numbness in, uh, in the extremities, um, but also leading to severe and widespread unusual blood clotting, blood clots happening throughout the body, including in the brain. Um, the ACE2 protein is also found in, in the joints. And so uh, organ damage or muscle damage happening uh, and bone uh, joint damage happening where the, the virus spreads and attacks there. Uh, another common place where this, the protein is found and where the virus migrates to is in the ears, inner ears. So increasing reports of, of people experiencing deafness or loss of hearing in one ear or a blockage, an unexplained blockage in one ear. Um, uh, meanwhile, while all this is going on, the body's immune system launches a massive counterattack against this virus. And this leads to something called a cytokine storm. And because the immune system is quite literally freaking the fuck out over this novel virus, and, and the, the body is trying to, what the body registers is unexplained inflammations all over the body in different organs. On the, in the liver, um, on the kidneys, in, in, in the stomach, uh, of course happening in the lungs, but also in joints, in muscles, in the blood, blood clotting, and, and sudden fatigue because of a sudden drop in oxygen levels uh, throughout the blood. Um, the body then goes into this overdrive, and because of that, there's a whole range of neurological symptoms that could get attached to this as well, including the loss of smell and the loss of taste. Uh, that happens in the neurological centers where the virus goes and attacks as well. So those are the different range of symptoms. And it turns out there's actually a little bit of variation uh, because it turns out that some folks' uh, blood chemistry and biochemistry responds differently to this virus than others. And that's a puzzle that, that scientists are still trying to figure out. But it may be that for some folks, their genetic makeup um, makes them predisposed to having milder symptoms to this virus than others. One interesting, that's come, uh, interesting finding has been around blood type, and it turns out that people with blood type A uh, tend to be more susceptible uh, to, the, to, to having more moderate uh, to severe symptoms uh, than people with blood type O. This is very, very pre preliminary, but it's, it's, this is what people are investigating, which makes sense given that the virus actually does impact the bloodstream. It becomes this pulmonary disease. Um, more so than just a respiratory disease. Um, so so some, some things that, that, that come about about this is, well, so how lethal is it? Um, so people die primarily because of the respiratory distress, but other ways that people are, are showing up in hospitals or dying in their homes have been through unexplained sudden strokes. Out of nowhere, uh, a formerly healthy person who's experiencing mostly mild conditions, not really experiencing any acute respiratory distress, suddenly has a stroke because uh, a blood clot suddenly you know, travels up, shoots up into the brain and causes uh, a, a stroke to happen. Or the virus has attacked a, a neurological center and caused uh, a stroke to happen. Other things that, that, that uh, other reasons for death are massive internal organ failure. Um, you know, acute GI distress, stomach distress that goes on for a while. And then before people know it, uh, they're actually experiencing organ failure uh, in their stomachs. Uh, and a third big reason, big cause of deaths due to COVID uh, are that the virus has impacted several parts of the body and the body itself goes into a massive system failure um, and the body just simply gives up and dies. Um, and so in, in autopsies, doctors have been, have been baffled by seeing 
uh, organ failure far away from the lungs. I've been baffled by seeing blood clotting happening in different parts of the body. But now that, that scientists understand that how the virus spreads and how it attacks, all of those ways in which the virus is lethal actually make more sense. And so some of the body counts or the death counts actually now have been factored into, into, into considering potential COVID complications from these kinds of organ damages. So given that, so some of the things to consider, this, the science also then explains uh, and helps us understand how to compare COVID to other forms of uh, coronavirus. Um, you know, how lethal is it really? Is it that much more lethal than the flu? So there, there's this is of course an area of misinformation. Trump is out there saying it's it's not it's not no big deal uh, that it's it's actually kind of for some people it's just really a strong flu. It turns out no, COVID is way more lethal than the flu. By by way of comparison, the flu in the U.S. kills anywhere between thirty to sixty thousand, maybe at, at the most about eighty to one hundred thousand people a year. This past year, last year, for example, was, was an especially bad flu season, and the, the estimates are around about sixty to 70,000 people died of the flu in the U.S. Currently, 10 months into the pandemic here in the U.S., the, the death toll due to COVID is at 210,000 people. So there's at least three times more people dead due to COVID this year than just the flu. So COVID, just by raw death count alone, is more lethal than the flu. But another way in which COVID is, is more lethal than the flu is just in the range of effects that it has. Um, uh, because uh, COVID spreads through asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread, unlike the flu, um, COVID is, is silent. It spreads silently. People don't even realize that they're spreading it until it actually gets people. The other thing is that COVID has a higher fatality rate, about 1.5% of people with uh, with COVID die. That may not seem like much, and of course, Trump is doing misinformation, saying like 99% of people are going to be fine. Well, no, even 1.5% is a lot of people. Because if we think about how contagious COVID is and how rapidly it spreads, currently there, are, uh, there have been about anywhere from 7 to 8 million cases of COVID just in the U.S. alone. Um, and just 1% of that is over... Uh, you know, a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand people, and that's what we're seeing. Um, so, so that that range, uh, the just the sheer numbers of of people infected with COVID who then die, is is very very alarming. That's very different. So, how does COVID compare to things like SARS or MERS or swine flu or even Ebola? It turns out SARS, which was also a coronavirus, and in fact, the coronavirus this time around is called SARS-CoV-2. Uh, because it is, uh, a, you know, an updated version of that SARS virus. The SARS virus, the SARS disease, um, is actually deadlier than the coronavirus, than, than COVID. Uh, SARS killed more people. The fatality rate was higher for SARS, but SARS was much less contagious than, uh, than COVID, and SARS was spread primarily after somebody had already developed very, very acute respiratory Symptoms. That's what SARS stands for: severe acute respiratory uh, syndrome. Um, and uh, and so because of that, the spread of SARS was limited only to people who already knew they had the disease, and it was fairly um, uh, straightforward to isolate people who had already contracted SARS. Very different with COVID because 
uh, people spread a disease with even mild symptoms or symptoms that seem like they're something else. You know what? My stomach feels upset. Ah, that, that maybe not, not be COVID. You know what? I'm going to go shopping anyway. Nope. That, that some your stomach being upset. If you have COVID, it means you're contagious. You're spreading actively the virus. All right. Similarly with MERS, deadlier than COVID, but far less contagious. Uh, swine flu, on the other hand, was a lot more contagious than COVID, but far, far less uh, lethal than COVID. And so COVID really has this, the coronavirus for COVID, SARS-CoV-2, has really kind of this, from a science perspective, has this perfect combination of factors that make it um, much more lethal than any epidemic that we have seen, any pandemic that we have seen. It is clearly the most serious, the most lethal pandemic that our civilization has faced. Um, so that's what the science tells us about what this virus is and how it affects the body. It turns out that setting aside just the lethality from a, from a death perspective, just the range of effects that COVID has on the body and the range of sort of unexpected organ damage and organ failure that people have, and even people that recover from, from COVID, the range of lingering symptoms and the potential of uh, sudden onset of blood clotting uh, uh, and uh, you know, lingering uh, damage to the to, to, to organs long term, uh, scarring of of uh, organ tissue and muscle tissue that is permanent. That is long term, um, and that is different from many of these other diseases. So even for people that recover from COVID, um, uh, the impact on their body is is far more lethal than for other other viruses. Okay, so given that, what is the data that we need to be paying attention to when it comes to you know, so clearly, given this the science, it makes sense that things like uh, social distancing and things like masks and things like locking down entire cities were the right response to make. The closest corollary we have is the 1918 Spanish flu. Um, and very similar to that, uh, cities that, that implement lockdown measures early are more likely to see lower death counts and so on. But then what is the right data we should be looking at? What, is, what are the factors we should be weighing into as we consider whether to re-enter a lockdown or not? If we're in a, uh, you know, and of course, I'm just an everyday person. I'm not a public health official. I don't have any authority over, over that. But how do I, as an everyday person, make sense of when a state government or a city government decides to implement certain public health measures? Let's now get into what kind of data we should be paying attention to. Okay, so speaking of data, if you're in a region that's just come out of lockdown and suddenly there's news about a rising number of cases and rising number of deaths and so on, and there's the talk of a lockdown, how do you make sense of that? What data should you be looking for? Well, so it turns out there's any number of data dashboards out there. Um, and one of the places to go to is the 538 website that actually has a composite model uh, that shows data collected from a bunch of different models out there. There's also the Johns Hopkins University model, uh, and then there's a model called the IMHE model. Now, the uh, of these models, the primary statistic to take a look at, the primary projection to take a look at, is death rates. It turns out raw case rates are actually um, a little misleading because um, of, of a couple of factors. Number one, case rates are highly dependent on testing, and as 
uh, countries that develop more testing capacity, and especially in the U.S., as people actually avail themselves of more testing, you are going to see more case counts. The case counts are going to go up. But the real indicator of the severity of case counts going up is actually whether hospitalizations go up. Uh, and one of the indicators of hospitalizations is death rates. And so the, the most common statistic that's shown on dashboards in addition to case counts is death rates. And death rate is a lagging indicator. It takes about two weeks for a, a really severe case of COVID to go from initial incubation all the way to somebody actually dying. Um, and so for a death rate to show up in the data, it's, a, it's about two weeks behind where the, the, where the virus actually is. But death rate, looking at death, death rate is a close proxy to understanding what may be coming up next. And seeing projected death rates is an important factor. The IMHE model is actually a good dashboard to take a look at. It's called, called COVID19.healthdata.org because it also includes hospitalization rates based on estimates of hospital, hospital resources, hospital beds, and especially ICU beds. And looking at ICU beds is actually a, a really, really um, uh, a clear indicator of the severity of a COVID outbreak in a particular region. Because the more ICU beds get taken up by COVID patients, the more stress that a hospital is under uh, for other resources as well, for other people that need those ICU resources. So one of the primary factors that state governments are going to use is when the projected rate of hospital utilization, especially of ICU bed utilization, begins to climb up, that's an indication that aggressive measures need to be put into place to do curfews or lockdowns and so on. And so um, these measures are about to happen in a bunch of different states in the U.S. So the current data, thinking about the impact of this on the election, the current data shows that in some of these battleground states, such as Wisconsin, COVID is now surging and uh, people in Wisconsin that I've been calling are very, very, very concerned about voting in person and also about uh, being at a polling station as a poll worker or as a poll observer. So, of course, those are the, those are the volunteer roles that, that I've been aggressively recruiting people for because we need poll, polling stations to be open. And it's, it's possible in about three weeks from now that the situation in Wisconsin might be so bad that certain polling stations might have to be closed, not because of a lack of poll workers, but because of public health measures or polling hours might be restricted, or even more severe social distancing norms might be put into place. And given the rapid rise of COVID in Wisconsin, it may be that voters who are waiting to go vote in person might actually be too sick to go vote in person uh, come election day. Now, what does that mean for the election? This is where I'm speculating. I don't know. The initial data suggests that in, in a place like Wisconsin, Democrats have been sending in absentee ballots and have been voting by mail. Republicans, led by Trump, have been aggressively saying things like, you know, voting by mail is a fraud and, and its uh, absentee ballots are going to get, um, you know, miscounted and all that. And so Republicans have actually been saying they're not going to vote by mail, they're going to go vote in person. So the initial data of returns in Wisconsin, the election has already started, people are already voting, and it turns out that by way of comparison, in 2016, about 700,000 people voted by mail in Wisconsin total. To date, in Wisconsin, over 650,000 absentee ballots have already been returned, and we're still three weeks out. 
Of those 650,000 ballots that have been returned, the majority of them are from uh, democratic counties or democratic-led uh, dominated counties. So there's good reason to, exp to, to assume that in Wisconsin right now, Democrats are voting in higher numbers than Republicans in this early voting phase, in this voting by mail phase, and that Republicans who are wa waiting to go vote in person might actually find themselves either too sick to go vote or find it too risky to go vote in person or find that um, social distancing or public health measures have been put into place to make it more difficult for them to go vote. That's, that's, that's of course, a crisis of democracy, but that's, that's where the data is showing Wisconsin tracking in terms of the COVID surge that's happening there. Some of the people that we talked to in Wisconsin on, in our phone banks actually told us stories about um, how they're, they're dealing with this. So, for example, just yesterday in one of the phone banks, uh, one of our callers relayed the story of a, of a person in Wisconsin who was actually in hospital with COVID when our caller called. And this person said that they'd got COVID um, and they they'd ended up being hospitalized, but they'd already requested their mail-in ballot. So they made sure that their family actually brought them their ballot so that they could vote from their hospital bed using the absentee ballot and that they were able to get that witnessed and sent in and to vote by mail. That is an inspiring story. And we are hearing stories like that of people in Wisconsin who are choosing to vote by mail, knowing full well of the risk of COVID and being very worried about the risk of COVID. So given that, um, we're also experiencing people who initially said that they want to be poll workers or wanted to be poll observers and now are really worried about what it's going to be like to work the polls on election day, given that there's going to be a rise in cases. And I am a poll worker in Massachusetts, and I'm worried because in Massachusetts, the rates are climbing. The infection rates are climbing, the hospitalization rates are climbing, and I am worried about the, the, the town where I'm going to be poll working because where I live in Massachusetts, in Central Mass, people around me, mostly Republican people, are not taking basic precautions. They think it's a hoax. And so what? Uh, now let's turn to that. What are the facts around some of the basic things, the precautions that we can take, and, and why does that matter? Let's turn now to what the facts tell us. So what are the basic facts around COVID and how we can, uh, how we can deal with it? I'm gonna break this out into four parts. What are some basic precautions we can take? What are some things we should do if we feel like we've been exposed? What are some things around treatment? Uh, how, do we, how do we get treated for COVID if we catch it? What does recovery look like? And finally, the I guess I meant five things. Finally, what are some strategies around prevention of this, especially around herd immunity and vaccines and therapeutics? So first, what are some basic precautions? Turns out something like something as simple as wearing a mask actually works. Why? What are the facts behind it? It turns out that wearing a mask doesn't actually protect you from catching the virus. It actually protects others from you exhaling virus particles out into the air. The number one way that, 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 that COVID spreads is by you being contagious before you know that you have any symptoms, before you know that you have the disease. And what wearing a mask does is it reduces the spread of the virus from you. Um, and it reduces the distance through which, by which the virus travels in the air. The virus is airborne. 
And, and so if you wear a mask, the way it also protects you from others isn't that it stops the virus from coming through. It turns out COVID can actually come through uh, cloth masks, but it reduces the viral load if somebody, if, if the virus is in the air um, and if you're socially distanced from somebody else, it reduces the chances of you catching the virus from somebody else. So that's the second thing is social distancing, staying at least six feet apart from somebody. Because the virus spreads to the air, you want to be at least far enough and <laughs> upwind from them uh, so that the virus, if they are contagious, the virus doesn't come toward you. Related to that, the primary way that's, that COVID affects you is through the nasal passages and getting into your mouth. So one of the, 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 the things to do is to wash your hands. Now, why is washing hands so important? It's not that COVID is going to come in through your body, through your hands. It's because the number one way that the virus then gets onto your into your nasal system and onto your into your mouth is through people touching their face. When you touch your face with your hands, any virus that's on your hands gets transferred onto your face. And from there, it's relatively straightforward for the virus to find itself into your nasal passage or into your mouth. And similarly, basic hygiene, like you're wearing your mask, you're washing your hands, but let's say you, you take a, a drink of water from a, from a water bottle while you're out in public, um, and it turns out that water bottle has some virus on it. And well, now that, that virus is now coming through your mouth into your GI system and affecting the ACE2 receptors in your stomach and causing you severe GI distress. Right. So basic social hygiene around that, personal hygiene around that. So one of the things I do is when I go to the grocery store, I leave my cell phone in my car and I go into the grocery store because I know that if I'm in the grocery store and my phone rings or, or, or you know my kids text me, I'm going to pick up the phone and check it. I can't help it. So if I keep my phone away, then I'm not touching my phone. I'm very vigilant about what I'm touching in the grocery store. It doesn't matter what I touch with my hands so long as I make sure that I'm not touching my face. And then when I get back to my car, I immediately sanitize my hands, then take my mask off. And I try not to touch my face or my mask when I'm in the grocery store with my hands. So those are some, some basic things around there. Other things around similar along those lines, uh, the three C's, avoiding closed spaces, avoiding crowds, and avoiding close contact with anybody else. Avoiding indoor spaces that where, where there's poor ventilation or poor circulation. Even air-conditioned places, if they're indoors, are going to recirculate the air and COVID spreads through the air. Those are some of the, some of the facts around some basic precautions. What do you do if you've been exposed? What kind of symptoms should you watch out for? So, of course, given the range of symptoms that COVID has, so things like a fever, cough, of course, that those are obvious. But if you have other kinds of unexplained symptoms, unexplained muscle aches that don't go away, um, strange GI issues, sudden loss of smell, immediately call your doctor. Your doctor is going to be the best person to actually advise you on whether to take those symptoms seriously or not. In the, at this time, it is actually worthwhile to be a bit more of a hypochondriac, to be a bit more paranoid and call, uh, even if you feel like it's not going to be not really that big, big, big a deal. Why? Not because you yourself might only have mild symptoms. You might feel like you can survive those mild symptoms, but because you are going to be contagious and going to be affecting other people. So don't be a spreader. If you feel like you've been exposed, isolate. Stay away from, from other people. Stay away from crowds. Isolate for at least 14 days because that's how long it takes for the virus to incubate. As soon as possible, try to get a test. Now, hopefully, in the U.S. anyway, testing is more available, more widespread, and there's a hopefully a little bit of a change in testing culture. Get tested. The, other, the last part of that is also contact trace. 
let people know um, that you have you possibly have been exposed and that you're waiting for a test. In the U.S., uh, where we don't have a contact tracing capability, in many other countries, um, they've established contact tracing. They've established aggressive testing, so contact tracing actually works. In the U.S., it's too late for us to have contact tracing. In Massachusetts, we have an army of contact tracers, and that's good. But even in Massachusetts, there are not enough contact tracing and there's not enough testing to make it actually feasible. So you have to actually do contact tracing yourself. What are some ways that you can be treated if you have COVID? If you have mild symptoms, your doctor is likely going to tell you to stay home. If you have more severe symptoms, your doctor is going to ask you to go to the hospital. And in the hospital, some of the options for treatment are going to be around helping you lay on your front to ease your breathing and treating you for possible inflammation in your lungs. Recovery from COVID is going to be interesting. I'm recovering from COVID, and what my doctor told me is that there's no guarantee that I'm going to be immune from COVID. It turns out that I, I, may, I may have had antibodies, but antibodies for COVID will likely disappear quickly within the span of several weeks. My, my T cells are going to have enough memory and will likely produce antibodies if I get infected again, but there's no guarantee that I'm going to be immune to the next strain of this virus uh, that, that's existing right now. So uh, just having had COVID is no guarantee of immunity because we don't know just what level of immunity catching COVID gives you. We especially don't know what level of immunity having a mild case of COVID gives you, which is what most people are going to get, a mild case of COVID. But we don't know whether that's, that makes them immune, and we don't know if that makes them at risk of getting reinfected with a more severe strain of COVID. Antibody testing is also not going to reveal much because after about a few weeks, those antibodies are going to drop down as well. There may be lingering effects of COVID as you're recovering. Finally, what are some things around prevention? This thing about herd immunity that the president is talking about now, and actually the administration is taking pretty seriously. Herd immunity is a concept where if you have a vaccine for a particular disease, herd immunity tells you, how much of the population needs to be vaccinated in order for people who have not been vaccinated to be protected from catching the disease because somebody else from the herd who have been vaccinated are going to catch it. Typical vaccination thresholds are in sort of the 60% to 80% rate, depending on how contagious the disease is. The, the more contagious, the higher, vaccine, uh, higher vaccination threshold you need. Herd immunity has never been used for a case where you have a virus and there is, there's no vaccine for the virus. And so the World Health Organization has said that trying to use herd immunity for coronavirus would be unethical because it would be basically letting an unknown virus, a lethal virus, you know, spread unchecked through a population with the hope that people who catch the virus are immune to it. We just don't even know that. So but if we were even just to go with that for a second, and if we were to assume at the lower end, 60% uh, herd immunity threshold, and if we were even to assume that everybody that catches coronavirus, COVID, is immune to it, that means that in the U.S., out of a population of over 300 million, that means that we are wanting 200 million cases, 60% of the population to be infected with coronavirus. And of that 200 million, 1.5% are going to die. That's 3 million people who will die if we let COVID uh, spread unchecked in order to achieve what we think might be herd immunity. And that doesn't even take into account 
the larger number of people, way more than 3 million, who will suffer, who will survive COVID, but will suffer severe long-term organ damage and body damage and body issues. So that's just a price too high to pay for herd immunity. It just simply does not work. The science does not back it. It's, it's factually just wrong to do it. Vaccines and therapeutics. There are a great, there's a great vaccine tracker uh, system uh, website out there. And what it says is that vaccines are at least several months out. There are only three vaccines that are in phase four testing right now. And realistically, they will not be ready for the public for at least another several months. Therapeutics are a little further ahead. The earliest that we can expect a therapeutic out there will likely be in the early spring. There, there are about 40 or so therapeutics that are in the phase three, phase four clinical trials. And so that's what the facts are around where we are with the virus. So let, let's now close this episode with a reminder of the four key takeaways. So where does that bring us back to? Well, given especially the events of the past week with uh, Trump getting COVID and then some, uh, you know, apparently miraculously, you know, bounding back in, in full health and saying that he is like better than ever, ever before, what's really going on here? Well, it turns out that he's actually on four different uh, medical treatments um, uh, that are, uh, you know, three of which are out of the reach of ordinary people like you and me. Um, the first treatment that he's on is an antiviral called remdesivir, and remdesivir is in phase three trials. It's not anywhere near uh, uh, public release yet, but it's gotten some emergency use authorization, um, and so he has access to that. Um, he is also uh, on a experimental uh, antibody treatment called Regeneron. And re that is in uh, preclinical, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, in, it's in clinical phase uh, uh, trials. Uh, it does not have emergency use authorization. There's only a limited number of doses available for, for exceptional situations. And apparently he's one of those exceptional situations. So he's got both an antiviral uh, and an antibody treatment. Um, he's also on uh, a steroid treatment called dexamethasone. And this is a steroid that's 10 times as strong as prednisone. And this steroid uh, is, is primarily an anti-inflammatory steroid, uh, primarily for any lung inflammation um, and, and to ease uh, uh, lung pain. Um, and so he's on that. And he is on, um, an, on oxygen every now and then because his blood oxygen levels have dropped. Um, so, so he had this, this uh, infusion of all of these, this, this whole cocktail of experimental and advanced um, uh, medication. Who knows what the effects really are going to be for him once those, those medicines wear off. But what does it mean for the rest of us? While he's now going around spreading misinformation based on his highly advanced uh, access to, to these medications, and now he's saying that, you know, not to take COVID so seriously and, and not to let it dominate you, what do the facts actually tell us? What, what does the science actually inform us? And where's the data actually going? It tells us the following four things. Buckle up. Don't let your guard down. Continue wearing masks. 
you know, uh, when, when stepping out. Uh, social distance, wash your hands, don't touch your face, practice hygiene that way. Uh, don't uh, be in indoor spaces uh, with, with people too long, especially poorly ventilated indoor spaces. Winter's coming around, people are going to be spending more time indoors and in crowded spaces indoors. Uh, avoid those, avoid indoor dining, avoid indoor shopping centers. Um, offices especially are, are going to be uh, fraught because it's not just surfaces, it's the air that you're going to be breathing that's going to have an impact. Um, buck up, stay resilient. Uh, uh, don't expect that things will go back to normal at a certain time uh, because you're going to be disappointed when that time comes around and you might find yourself back in lockdown. Uh, lockdown is increasingly likely in many, many parts of the world. Um, and so brace yourselves. Things are going to get worse before they get better. But we're in this together. So be informed, be aware. Let's be that um, uh, societal immune response system against the kind of misinformation and propaganda that, that Trump is doing. And people, you know, your friends, your family are probably going to believe some part of what he's saying. So uh, it's on us to be that societal immune response system against that. And so 20 days out from the election, that's how I feel. It's like, ah, not only do we have the election to deal with, we also have this pandemic and we have this misinformation campaign and we have voters in Wisconsin uh, who are terrified and confused and wondering what to do with in-person voting as that begins to open up next week. So while we wait for that, I hope we all stay healthy, stay safe, stay home and stay dangerous. Thank you.